All right. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's let's open them up to Matthew chapter 28. Uh, Matthew chapter 28. If you're wondering, hey, I feel like I've been here a long time, and we are always in the book of Matthew. Uh, I have a good news of great joy for you this morning. Uh, we are coming to the end. Uh, in fact, this will be no, no. I'm serious this time. Uh, after this week, we will have no more verses in Matthew. Um, but we were discussing this this morning that um, some of you weren't here at the beginning, and so uh, the following week we're just going to start again, chapter one, uh, verse one, and hopefully by the time we're all dead, we will know Matthew. I'm just, I'm joking. Um, but by my count, it's been um, well, like this will be our 86th week. Uh, and so uh, I know some of you are like, I think he's just trying to make up high numbers. Uh, but if you were here uh, on January the 11th, 2015, uh, you will uh, remember we started in chapter one. And uh, and and if you've you've spent your time, we've been we've been patiently walking through this. And I don't I don't say that jokingly. Uh, we very intentionally try to walk patiently through. Uh, books of the Bible, and, and granted, uh, there have been seasons where what we've done is we've tried to chew on these uh, in bite-sized portions, uh, where we will take a grouping of chapters and chew on those words so that we can better understand the the theme of what Matthew uh, has been developing. But but really, what's happened is that for the past 85 weeks, as we've walked through Matthew, that that he has consistently done something for us, uh, and it's to our benefit. Uh, He has walked in, and he has put Jesus on display, and he has simply says, take your eyes off of yourself and look to him. Uh, I want you to see what he has been doing. And and I suppose, really, anytime we gather together, we want to ask ourselves this question at the end of, of every time we open up God's Word, is do I love Jesus more than I did just before I began. Uh, as we walk through certain verses, is my affection for Jesus stronger? Uh, do I appreciate his sacrifice more than when I began? And, and I know for myself, uh, this, uh, since 2015, uh, this has been the case, that, that I love Jesus more today than I did back then, and I loved him back then as well. Uh, that that I've seen as we've walked through these verses together, um, really just parts of me exposed. Uh, I've seen areas of my own immaturity. I've seen areas of my sinfulness exposed. And, and really, that's happening at the same time that I see Jesus' mercy and His grace being poured out. And, and what's been my aim uh, throughout all these verses is that we would grow in our love for Jesus, that, that we have seen in these chapters uh, our King walking and healing and teaching and loving and sacrificing Himself for a people that He loves, even those who are very hostile towards Him, that you and I would say, you know, they don't deserve your love. I do because I love you, but they don't because they're not being nice. Uh, and you know, we've spent time these past few weeks watching uh, our King Jesus defeat death and sin and, and come back from the grave. We, we celebrate in Him that, that death is swallowed up in His victory. Uh, that, that our lives have a greater purpose than just our, 
own small stories. And, and now we arrive at the, the final scene of this incredible gospel uh, where the last five verses begin to turn our attention away from what Jesus has done and forces us to listen to what Jesus tells us to do with our lives because of what he has done. Uh, and, and it changes everything. We, we find in these verses a great purpose and we wrestle with the notion that the crucifixion and the resurrection without life change could cause us to pause in concern that maybe we don't understand the gravity of what Jesus has done uh, for us. And, and because Jesus changes everything, our lives should reflect the change that he's making in our hearts. You with? Does that, does that sound like a fair exchange? Uh, that you always get the better end of that bargain, by the way. Um, and so, so what we're going to do is we're, we're going to buckle down today. Uh, we're going we're gonna to do some hard work, and we're going to hear Jesus activate us into the work of his ministry. He's going to clarify for us what it is God wants us to do with our lives. Uh, now that we are, if we are, wrapped up uh, in Christ. And, and I think uh, what we're going to try to do, some of us this morning, because I've been trying to do this all week long, uh, is, is we're going to try to avoid making flimsy excuses or, or defend our outright negligent behavior uh, when it comes to the very specific thing Jesus is calling us to do. So, so let's pray, and then we will, we will unpack these verses. Father, we come to you, and we thank you that on January the 11th, 2015, you were with us as we opened up into chapter 1 and verse 1. And we thank you that uh, you are still very intimately with us as we wrap up uh, chapter 28 and verse 20. Uh, we thank you that your Holy Spirit over these, um, these weeks has been very evident in our hearts. And I pray as we lean into uh, some very clear instructions that, that we would understand how important it is. And we would not leave here wondering what it is you want us to do with our lives, that, that you would um, light, that your Holy Spirit would light a very literal fire in our hearts, that we would burn to make you known, that we would make much of you, especially in these next few moments as we open up your word. We love you, and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, all right, so here's, what, here's, how, here's how we're going to break this up. Um, we're we're going to deal with the setting real quickly. Uh, and then instead of going uh, in order of the verses, uh, we're going to skip uh, one main verse, okay? Uh, because what I want us to do is I, I want you to see the gas that makes the engine run, uh, if, if that will make any sense here in a little bit. Uh, I, I want you to see two things that Jesus says to us. Uh, so that we can better understand the thing that Jesus is calling us to do with our lives. And so, so the setting uh, is, is, of course, we've been traveling with this. We celebrated last week. We had Easter in December, right? Uh, Mary and Mary, they are at the tomb. The angel is just kind of hanging out, sitting on top of the stone with his feet uh, kind of waving. And he says, hey, hey, go tell the guys that Jesus is back. Uh, you're welcome. You go into the tomb. You look, see for yourself. Then you go, all right? And you tell them that Jesus is going to Galilee. There he will meet them. And we celebrated that, right? Because there's such joy that we find 
and the fact that Jesus came back from the grave, that, that his sacrifice was accepted by God, uh, and that he's not a liar, so that we can trust him, we can lean into him. And, and so what, he, what he's going to do, though, in these verses as he sits with his disciples, is he's going to tell us two things that give us strength and ability to go do what he's calling us to do. And now these verses, they run almost like an epilogue uh, in a story. I don't know if you ever, if you are a reader, um, if once you get to the end of the book and you see epilogue or you see um, afterward, you're like, I don't want to read that. I've already done the hard work, right? Uh, I've finished the book. Now, now we should be very careful uh, because though this reads almost like an epilogue, uh, we feel like we've already hit the climax that Jesus is not dead. He is risen, right? We should pay very careful attention to these five verses because it tells us something really important. Verse 16. So chapter 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountains to which Jesus had directed them. Okay? So it says the eleven disciples. And if you're wondering, you're like, oh, wait, I thought there was twelve. Remember, Judas doesn't end his story well. Tragedy. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but but some doubted. Okay? We're not even going to deal with that. Okay? We don't have enough time. Uh, Verse 18. And Jesus came... And he said to them this, okay? He says, guys, listen, all authority, okay? So if you like to underline your Bible, this is a pretty big three-letter word to underline. All authority, all authority has been given, uh, I'm sorry, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, okay? So here's what we're going to find in verse 18, okay? We are going to find Jesus make a very lofty claim. In fact, it's the, it's the first thing you can write down in your top notes, that, that in the structure of the Great Commission, right, uh, we find a very lofty claim that Jesus says, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. That, that, that now, if you and I made that statement, right, if you walked in and said, guys, listen, don't worry about it, I have all of the authority on heaven and on earth, a very valid question that you would ask that person, you would ask me if I said it, what have you done to earn that credit, you know? What, what have you done to earn that authority? By which right do you have to make such a bold claim? And if you know me, you know that that would be foolish talk. Because I don't even have the authority in my own house. Uh, we have like a five-year-old girl who apparently runs it now. Uh, that just happened overnight. Like, there's all of a sudden this five-year-old, poof, you've lost all control. Uh, she walked in, kicked the door down, and says, I will take over from you. Um, but, but, but we, we ask this question, and I think uh, it's very fair to ask. When Jesus says, okay, by all authority, I have all the authority in heaven and on earth, okay? Uh, that you would say, well, how and why, right? Uh, and and it's, a, it's a valid question because he's about to tell you what to do with your life. And that's why Matthew has been so, so painstakingly at times walking us through Jesus' footsteps. It's why he spends so much time saying, okay, when Jesus did this thing, it's in connection to what was said about him. Uh, It's in connection to a prophecy spoken over him. It's about every time he opens his mouth, he tells you the truth so that when you go to him and you say, help me, help me, help my faith grow here. He says, you can trust me. All authority on heaven and on earth. We've walked with him as he says, I'm going to yield up my spirit. I'm laying myself down as a ransom for many. 
and this is for your benefit. Uh, it's why we can celebrate that we are not left to our own, that, 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 that Jesus has died for sin. And not only did he die, he triumphs over guilt and condemnation. He's been raised from the dead to triumph over suffering and death. And in his triumph that over that guilt and over that condemnation and over that suffering and over that death, he's also defeated Satan. And he says, that guy doesn't have control over you. That guy can't beat you. I am stronger than him. That 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 because Jesus has triumphed so gloriously over guilt and condemnation and suffering and death and Satan, it says this, that therefore God, okay, therefore the Father has exalted Him and given Him a name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, it says this, that one day, at one time, all knees will bow, all tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord. Okay, that's the name, that's the authority that God has given Jesus. And if you're looking for where that's at in the Bible, go spend some time this week in Philippians chapter 2. Because, and, and another way of, of saying that is when we say that, that God has given Jesus um, this authority that all knees will bow, all tongues will confess, is, is when Jesus says, yeah, all authority is mine. I'm in control. Now, the issue with that statement in itself is, well, how do I know that you're really in control when I don't feel like I have any control? And that's where, that's where faith begins to, to climb. And this is it's a lofty claim. And only, only Jesus is able to make this without, with, with one ounce of honest testimony. That, that the fact that he is there in the flesh making this statement tells us something about his credentials. Right. That's that's what I love about the Bible, because it doesn't just come in and say, hey, um, when we say about Jesus uh, that you should just go ahead and believe that. No, no, no. What the Gospels do is they walk us through the footsteps of Jesus and Jesus is being put on display saying, hey, you can trust me because my credentials are being put on uh, put to task. They're being asked to be revealed. And so we can trust in that. So, so you have this this lofty claim that no one else can, can make. And now what I want us to do is go from 18 and just jump to the last half of verse 20. Where Jesus is going to bring us a very loving comfort. He's going to bring us a loving comfort. And I love this because he comes in. Okay, and now we're going to start with and behold. Uh, but, but he's going to tell them something to do with their lives. And then he's going to come in and say and behold. I... And with you, and I want you to circle or underline that next word, always, to the end of the age. Okay? Both of those things are very helpful in their own unique ways. It says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, so this Jesus, who has all authority over every enemy, over every disease, over every calamity, over every futility, promises this, promises to be with you. And he has never once lied to you. So you have no cause really to legitimately doubt that. But he has always promised this. And I think this is the, the, the preciousness of the new covenant uh, that, that Jesus buys for us with his blood. That uh, God says it in other places in the Bible. He says, I, I will be their God, they shall be my people. 
chapter in Jeremiah 31. He says, I will, I will not turn away from them and I will do for them good in Jeremiah 32. I will uphold them with my right hand of righteousness. Uh, right before that in Isaiah 41 when, when, he's, Jesus is, when God is saying this to us, he says, do not fear. Don't be afraid. For I'm the Lord your God. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So, so, so Paul tells us that, that we can trust Jesus, that, that though everyone has deserted us, uh, the Lord has stood by, given us strength, so that even in the worst threats of our lives, we can lean into this promise that Jesus says, I will be with you always. So, so, so who speaks this over us, right? Uh, this is the one who has all the authority in heaven and on earth. Nobody can take that away from him. He's, he's given us a promise, and no one can come in and say, you can't actually do that. Because he says, all authority on heaven and earth is mine. No one tells me what to do. No one. In fact, um, this is a, to me, uh, this is a, a very loving comfort that Jesus brings us. This is beautifully powerful, and it's grossly underused in our lives. The fact that Jesus is with you. We, is, is it not the case that sometimes you forget that? That oftentimes when life gets difficult, or when life gets scary, or when life gets hard, you say, where is God in this moment? Is Jesus not even paying attention to what's going on because all hell is breaking loose in my life? And here's a promise. Some would say this is a fact. That I am with you always. And so, so the question is, when, when can we turn to him? Right? Uh, if, if Jesus is with us always, you have this, that he will be with you. So when can we turn to him? Well, we can always turn to him. Right? That's the continuation of his presence in your life. He is always near. And he is always willing to hear your voice. Uh, and then, then, then the next question that's begged to be asked is how long, right? Because <laughs> isn't that the way, isn't that some of our hesitancy to take in certain things to Jesus? Isn't it that our, uh, again? Surely, I, I know I'm worn out by this. Surely he is. So the question is, for how long will he be with me always? And this is why what Jesus says, second, is so important. Beautifully important to us. He says this. He says, to the end of the age. To the end of the age. That is, that's the duration of the promise of his presence. It will be there till the end of the age. And this is great news for us. Because if the end of the age is tomorrow, then Jesus will be there. If the end of your life is tomorrow, Jesus will still be there. To the end of the age. He says, I will be with you. So, so we have this word out of the mouth of Jesus. It's, it's a lofty claim, right? All authority has been given to me. And then we have this very loving comfort. It makes you feel all warm and, and fuzzy inside, right? You get, you get so excited. You're like, oh, Jesus says he loves me so much, right? He gives us this, this loving comfort. I am, I am always with you. That there will not be a moment in your breathing that I will not be with you. Some of us need to hear that. But there's not a moment that you are breathing that I'm not close to you. Because when you stop breathing in me, if you are in me, 
for that adventure with you this week. So, so let's get into verse 19, where Jesus is going to give us uh, a, a last command. And, and what's going to be clear in, in this final word of Jesus is, is that he is moving us toward action. He's moving us to do something with our life, which is why he gives us such a, uh, a tremendous encouragement and, and this and tremendous uh, comfort and strength to go anywhere. Okay? He says, my presence is with you. You can rest assured I'm granting you the authority that I have. Okay? So, so Jesus ends his earthly life with these words because he wants us to respond. Uh, he wants us to, to do something with our lives. And the question is this. And it's a million-dollar question, right? What does God want me to do with my life? Okay, so he says this, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And some would read that and be like, that's it? That's, that's his final command? That we would go, we would make disciples, that we would baptize them. That seems like a pretty simple thing, right? That we would remind them of what Jesus has taught them. And now here's what we need to remember about this. Jesus says, those words, those beliefs, the world's coming after you. To these 11 guys that he's speaking to, he says, they're going to come kill you because you're doing those things. He says, the world will hate it. But typically, that's what we, we hate things that we don't understand. We don't realize that what Jesus is doing is saying, hey, this is how you save the world. And I think this can be an incredible task that lies before us. Uh, and if he was only speaking to you with the expectation to go save the world, um, you would have a really difficult time doing that, right? Because um, you're like, there's, there's a billion people, right? Um, but, but what he does is something really beautiful because he says, okay, what, what's happening is that I, I am forming you into a family. I am making you into the family of God. I am putting you, um, I'm connecting you with other churches, with other communities. And the responsibility of each community is the same, that, that every person would understand that this is what they are called to do with our lives. They would go and they would make. That we should never forget that in the commissioning of Jesus, he's given us the authority to do these things. So we're not without a warrant. As we grow in him, um, we're not going without being equipped. Okay? So, so, so don't confuse what the authority allows, though. Because this is, this is where I'm going to get on a couple soapboxes today. Uh, and you're just going to have to deal with it. Okay? Um, because, because what Jesus says is that we have the authority to go and, and make disciples. Okay? And in that making, we're encouraging them to go. Okay? So, so we need to be very careful that we don't understand what our method is, that, that we don't solely go around telling people how wrong they are for how they're living. Okay? That became a really easy thing to do for the church. Uh, hey, let's just spend time telling people how, how wrong they are, even though they are wrong. And what we do is we make the mantra of our lives, hey, go and stop doing those things. And we never lean them into go and see how incredibly beautiful and powerful Jesus is. Okay? Because it's, it's my belief that, that if, if we follow Jesus, we will stop things. 
we will stop doing certain things in our lives. That, that if we teach people to follow Jesus and we fall in love with him, the stuff eventually stops because we see how empty it is. We see how fleeting that, that joy may be or that passion may be. The more we love Jesus, the more willing we are to stop those things that are deadly and dangerous and empty to begin with. That, and I think this is perhaps our biggest mistake in evangelism. We think Jesus won't love sinners, and so we tell sinners to stop acting like sinners, then they can meet Jesus. Tell me if I'm wrong about that. No? I'm not? Okay, good. I'm glad you're all on my page. When, when what we see is that Jesus comes to die for sinners, and it's not until they see such great love that they are motivated to move even in one inch in his direction. Okay, So, so you walking in telling your, your uh, nephew or telling your brother or telling your, your crazy uncle that you barely like, hey, stop being a sinner so Jesus will like you more. It's just foolish. He says, you go and you make disciples. You don't spend all of your time. And this is going to lead us into some, some, some realizations about the Great Commission. Now, let me say this, because, because my, my bet is that if you spent time in church, you've, you've heard these verses. If you've not really ever spent time in church but around people, you've probably heard uh, these verses um, given. That, uh, that but what, what we're going to find is that there are some intentions of the Great Commission that, that's calling out of your, from your life. Uh, that sentence didn't make sense, so we're just going to move along. Okay? Let, let, me, let me tell you, the intent of the Great Commission, and we're going to get here uh, in a couple different ways, that, that number one, that the intent of the Great Commission, what Jesus is telling us to do, is that we would go and make, not sit and wait. Okay? And you're like, oh, that sounds like a clever attempt to be clever. It's really not. Okay? Um, that, that the intention of the Great Commission, what Jesus is telling us, is that, that with our lives we should go and make, not sit and wait. And this is, it's, it's easy to read this command and, and right out of the gate be confused as to what the command is. Because most of us think that the command given here is go. And it's not. In fact, when you, when you look at the word, and this is where our translations usually um, give us a problem, because uh, in the Greek What's, what's actually being said is that this is a command that Jesus is saying, as you go. Uh, it, it's not so much a, that word go, it's not so much a, a command as it is an assumption. That as you go, as you walk, as you are living in the wake of what I have done, okay? And then the command is this, make disciples. Okay? So he's not saying go, oh, go is step one. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, uh, you don't ask how to breathe, you just do it. And he's saying, this is what I'm saying. As your footsteps follow after what I have done, then you have a command to make. And, and as Jesus changes everything, the footsteps of your life change as you go. The, the steps become, again, like, like breathing. It's just what you do. You go to the places that Jesus would go. That, that, that Christians go into places of the world where people need Jesus. That's what he says. And if you're wondering where that was modeled, get into the Gospels, watch where Jesus spent time. 
Watch what Jesus was doing. And this is the danger of selling a version of the gospel that suits primarily the self, right? Uh, because, and, and I don't know if you grew up in this culture, this was kind of mine. Hey, make sure you're safe. Make sure you've accepted Jesus. And the problem with that model is simply this. I don't know what to do with my life after I've said, okay, Jesus, I'm yours. And so what happens is you sit and you say, well, one day I'm going to die and I guess it's going to get good. They've told me about heaven. Sounds like there's going to be mansions there and streets of gold. I've heard inappropriate jokes about Peter. He's going to be hanging out by the gate, right? And so the model isn't go and make it. It becomes sit and wait. It becomes sit right here in your seat, right? Or the pew or, or wherever. And you just say, okay, well, I, I guess I'm here. <laughs> and it's a very hollow and empty existence. And it's not the Bible's fault for it. It's ours. It's ours that, that we go into the places that Jesus went. And I think when the pinnacle of the gospel becomes the fact that you are now saved, there's Little to do with your life until you die. And, and sadly, this is the model that many people who get saved in, in church all the time, they spend the rest of their days waiting to journey with God in heaven. And this is why the intent of the Great Commission is that it would not end with you. Okay? Jesus died for you, yes. And then you are not your own. In fact, um, this is why the intent of the Great Commission is that I go, I make much of Jesus, that people would see their great need for my King. Not that I would go sit in a chair on Sundays believing I'm saved, waiting to die. What a, what a boring life to live. Some of us are living it. And I think part of this misunderstanding is because we, again, we, we confuse words. We have a very low view of what a disciple actually is. And that's why, number two, uh, the, the, the intent of the Great Commission is that we would be a disciple, not merely a convert. Not merely a, a convert. In fact, uh, the term disciples was very popular for the early believers because being a disciple meant more than just being a convert or, or a church member. Uh, it, was, it was literally an apprentice uh, might be a more, actual, more equivalent term. Uh, that, that a disciple attached himself to a teacher. Uh, he identified with the teacher. He learned from him. He lived with him. He learned not simply by listening, but also by, by doing. And, and, and when we think about a convert, uh, which is what plagues, I think, the church today. Uh, we have a lot of converts. We don't have near enough disciples. Um, told you, this is another soapbox we're going to get on for a little bit. Um, but, but a convert simply adjusts their previous life by merging something new into it. You convert it, right? I'm still at my core this thing, and now if I'm going to convert it, I'm going to add this new thing, and it's going to adjust what happens. Okay? And, but, but the Bible has never told you to convert into anything. In fact, what the Bible says is that as you receive Christ, you are no longer your own. That, that what Christ has done has swallowed you whole. That the love of God has ravished you in beautiful and in powerful ways. And, and, and that I think that this is why, and I'm going to say this about, about converting, that 
that Jesus hasn't given his life become a compartment of your life. He hasn't come into your life to convert portions of it. Um, and, and, and he gave his life so that you could lose yours. And you say, well, I had a good life. I was a good person. I liked what was going on. And all of that might be true. And it might be very honest. But that life that you so strongly want to cling to was leading you to your ruin. It was, it was eating you alive. And so Jesus comes and he rescues you from that. That's why verses like Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that's why they're so beautifully powerful. And we're reminded that, that I have been crucified with Christ. That, it, that it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which now I live, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me so much to give himself up for me. And so, so a disciple is chosen by a rabbi, which is what I love about the gospel. Because Jesus looks at us and says, I choose you. And I'm not choosing you to convert, I'm choosing you to become. I'm choosing you to become something greater, something more. The gospel was never intended to fit into your life. Okay, hear me when I say that, because I say it with love. The gospel was never intended to fit into your life. It was always intended to swallow you up whole by rescuing you in the best way possible. Okay? So, so, so let's get to the third intent. And I think, uh, Ryan, I think I've lost all control. Uh, so you're going to have to take it from here on out. Um, that, that the intent of the Great Commission is that, thirdly, that I would be passionate about making disciples. My harshest words all week are coming right here. I'm just letting you know. You're like, well, he's been a jerk the whole time. I'm going to be, be more of a jerk here in a second. That the intent of the Great Commission is that I would become very passionate about making disciples. That when Christians go, they don't wander aimlessly. They go with a laser-locked focus. They, they go in this desire of helping those who are far from God find life in Christ. Their, their love for Jesus becomes evident. And because it's evident, it's attractive. Not because of anything you're doing, but because of what Jesus has done. It becomes very attractive. And we help those people uh, love and follow Jesus. This is the pattern of the New Testament church. Uh, though it's not always the pattern of the church today. In fact, Warren Wearsby said it this way. He said, uh, and I'll, I'll just allow this thing to kind of rest on us. Uh, he says, in many respects, we've, we've departed from the New Testament pattern, that, that in most churches, the congregation pays the pastor to preach, win the lost, build up the saved, while the church members function as cheerleaders if they're enthusiastic uh, or spectators if they're not. He says the converts are one. Uh, they're baptized and given the right hand of fellowship. Then they join the other spectators. Then he asks this question. It's just been, oh man, it's been hurting me all week. How much faster would our churches grow and how much stronger and healthier and happier would our church members be if each one were discipling another believer? And he said, well, then you guys should build a program and give us six simple steps. That's not the way it works. 
That as disciples, we are Jesus to the world. And so, so the intent is that our love would be contagious and that our love would be intentional, that we would make people lovers of Jesus, not, not an empty religion. Uh, that, that's why each of us, uh, that's why each step of what we do together is designed to help you go. Every, everything that we do here as a church is very specifically designed not so that we can build a room full of people in here, okay? It's in, with the intention that you would go and do what God has called you to do, very clearly told you to do, by the way. That we gather on Sundays uh, together to make much of Jesus collectively, and we chew on his word as a, as a way of centering our hearts for the adventures, to remind us what really is important, what really does matter with our lives. We, we gather in merge groups because together we create community that gives us strength and accountability um, for those kind of adventures. We, we stress to men around here the importance of being family shepherds because they have a command to be the spiritual leaders in their homes, not so that they can have a really nice-looking, beautiful family picture over the mantle, but so they can lead their families in purpose and they can lead their families into stories worth telling. We encourage our kids to know the important role that they play in the story of God today with their friends because today is the time they will have access to as many people as they will ever. And that starts with at any age. We serve our communities not because the church uh, should lead their cities in compassion, though they should. We serve our community so that those being served may see the love of God, especially in the midst of difficult circumstances. Because in the middle of difficult circumstances, your, your awareness of what God is doing is heightened. And you're more willing to say, only God could have done this. We serve because that matters. And let's not, let's not be confused. All of our movement as the church and as the believers should be in one simple direction, that we would go and make disciples by making much of Jesus. And if you haven't said anything about Jesus this week, you have a problem. Uncomfortable yet? Okay, good. Let's start wrapping this up. That here, here's, here's an honest confession, Okay? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them. I will be with you always. Let me, let me tell you what's hard to say here. We don't do that well enough in the church. And when I say the church, let me, let me clarify a little bit. What I mean is this church. What I mean is, is us people. We don't do this. Well enough, because if we did, we couldn't contain it. Because it was never intended to be controlled or contained. What, what God is doing, there's this beautiful image in the Bible about what God does, that he moves like fire. Some of you this week have seen images, right? You've watched news reports of what's happening in California, and, and you see just, it's weird, because it's, it's incredibly scary, but also magnificently beautiful. To watch a fire move. And that's what the Bible's telling us to do. He says you move like a fire. 
He says, you allow what Jesus has done to change your entire life, to change your entire makeup. And if, if and, and when I say we don't do this well enough here, I'm not joking. Because I know I don't do it well enough here. And I think if you're like, whoa, whoa, cool it, bro. Ask yourself this simple question. Did you go and make this week? The past seven days, did you go and make or are you sitting and waiting? Think about opportunities. Some with perfect strangers. Some with people you know what's going on in their lives and you know they really need Jesus. In fact, sometimes you just joke around, boy, they need Jesus. And you don't get, no, no, they really do. But back, I'm I'm doing good stuff. I'm being nice. I'm opening doors. I've even given a parking space to that person I don't really like. I'm I'm doing good. And what I would say is good. Go join the Lions Club. Go be part of the YMCA. Go join with a group of people that are just doing good, random acts of kindness. But don't confuse that with being a gospel-believing follower of Christ. That you can do all of the good in the world. And if the love of Christ isn't attached to it, it's useless. Just utterly useless. Because yes, people need clothes. Yes, people need blankets. But what they need most desperately in their life is Jesus. And you will never stumble. I heard a guy say it this way. You will never accidentally... um, person will never watch you carry a bowl of soup to a person in need and say, oh, there's Jesus. It doesn't work that way. With your mouth, you proclaim the goodness of God. With your actions, you put it on display. And our problem is that we are really comfortable. We're really comfortable. Some of us sit in these seats, and when you first came, you're like, oh, I hated these seats, man. They're not comfortable at all. But you're like, eh, they're not so bad now. And that's a lot of our lives is with Christ. I've grown comfortable in just not being, not caring about what he's told me to do. Those are hard words. They're hard words when you put it that way, Right? Because what, what we typically do is we, we dress these words up and we're like, yes, you know, and then we want to make that, hey, next Sunday is bring a friend Sunday, right? And all of you for one week, just like, oh, man, I want to invite like four of my friends. I'm going to be exhausted this week from inviting friends to church. That's not what he said. That is not what Jesus has said, is it? He didn't say go invite people to show up to merge on Sundays, even though I think you should. I think it's kind of a nice place where some guy just yells at you for like 40 minutes and then you go home. No, no, you go into the dark places of other people's lives and you shine your light. 
because it is the only way they find their need for Jesus. Now the danger, and I'm sorry, I'm just rabbit trailing, but, but the danger of this is, is this. Well, what's my system? What's, what's my program? So I'm going to ask, I'm going I'm to really focus each week now on one person. And don't, don't put a formula to it. Just go. Just go. And you go with open hands and with eyes wide open. And you say, Jesus, wherever you're sending me and whoever you're sending me to, I just want to be you for them. I want to love them with your passion. I want to serve them with your sacrifice. I want to make much of you because you deserve to be made much of. And our desire this week is to love God by... Please stand with me. You might want to stretch a little bit. Maybe your ribs are sore from being punched. I like that. I like you being sore. It's your, it's your heart's way of saying, hey, we're doing some stuff. It's your heart's way of saying, we're doing stuff. We wrap up. We want to make some prayer available to you. Uh, Mark and Heather and Ethan Kim, they'll be up here. We want to pray with you. Maybe you do need to deal with this morning the fact that, man, you have become very comfortable with sitting and waiting. Very comfortable. That you've confused good intentions and random acts of kindness as proclaiming the beauty of Jesus. And that you would be willing to take the step. You'd be willing to open your mouth to proclaim and teach Jesus to other people. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we are very thankful and mindful of all that you've done. And I pray we would carry the weight of that. That we would feel the importance of it. That we would not be satisfied here with the fact that maybe we invited someone to show up somewhere. That we would not be satisfied with the fact that that we're just with random acts of kindness while we're wearing a church t-shirt. But that we would only be satisfied when you are being made much of. That we would walk into dark places. That we would, we would rely on strength that only you can provide. That we would lean so heavily into miracles that only you can perform. And that as we make much of you, others would see their desperate need for you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.